Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 119 of Let's Get Haunted, the only podcast that gets you pretty haunted and then you feel bad and your day's ruined and now you got to talk to your coworkers about something really weird that you learned. It's a cathartic experience. It really is. We are so excited to announce that this episode is sponsored once again by Manscaped. Yep. Thank you very much, Manscaped, for believing in us and sponsoring this episode of the pod. I hope we don't let you down. Yeah. It is so freaking hot in our recording studio right now, and I'm like sweating everywhere. And I was literally just thinking, like, if I was a dude, I need that like ball spray or whatever. Right. (laughs) Yes, that ball deodorizer spray. Yes. And maybe some of you listening can relate to this feeling of like maybe the AC doesn't work, maybe you're working outdoors. And everything's just fucking sticking together Mm -hmm. and it's super uncomfortable. And you're like, thank God nobody is like trying to go down on me right now. Well, guess what? Now you can be ready to be gotten down on anywhere, (laughs) anytime by going to manscaped.com and getting 20% off plus free shipping with the code Let's Get Haunted. Yep, Manscaped has everything you need to be getting down this summer while it's hot. You can get your ball deodorizer. You can get the performance package, which has a trimmer and a weed whacker ear and nose hair trimmer. It also has the Crop Reviver Toner, performance boxer briefs and a travel bag that holds all of your new goodies and if you didn't know what 40% of that meant, you need to order this and get your hygiene in order. And I love the Manscaped boxers. They sent us some free ones last year, and I actually bought another pair semi-recently. Super soft. They're advertised as being breathable, and I don't have balls, but I was thinking, oh, like, what difference could it really make? I'm telling you, that shit is breezy as fuck. Yeah. Let's go ahead and just do a shave your pubes challenge, you guys. (laughs) Everyone go to (laughs) manscaped.com, enter code let's get haunted at checkout for 20% off plus free shipping on your new trimmers and let's shave all our pubes together you too can be as smooth as a ningen floating through the antarctic sea scaring japanese whaling ships as you travel don't be the black carpet diver guys (laughs) you want to be a ningen okay this is a hot ningen summer transitioning into what might become black carpet fall. That's and right. we got to keep it in check. We got to keep that Ningen going strong. Take the black <laughs> Okay, that's good. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code let's get haunted at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code let's get haunted, all caps, all one word, at manscaped.com. This year, graduate with a degree in smooth shaves from Manscaped. Oh, shit. If you didn't get a degree, now you can fucking add this to your resume by going to manscaped.com. Entering let's get haunted at checkout for 20% off plus free shipping. Now back to your regularly scheduled haunting. Uh, Natalia, what are you up to today? I am recording this podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm also wondering why you don't have a phone. The past couple weeks, Alyssa has not responded to any of my texts, which if anyone here listens to this and they're like, oh, that's like just Alyssa, right? No, no, no. But this is different because she like normally would like send something at like three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) You know, like there would be something in there to let me know she was alive, but hadn't heard anything from her. And then I got an email from the let's get haunted account that was like hey by the way i don't have my phone 
Uh, so if you're trying to like talk to me, I'm not getting it. And I was just thinking like, it's been a really long time between now, this moment of you and I recording this podcast and like that email coming in relatively. I mean, it's probably like five days five or something. Five days, yeah. And I still, like you told me you still didn't have a phone yet. And I was like, this is really exciting because I feel like Alyssa is so organized and it's so like uncharacteristic for her to be living this chaotic, like no phone lifestyle, emailing like in all lowercase from the let's get haunted email yeah. to me. <laughs> and I, I felt like at the same time, I was like, really like, this is cool. Like what's going on with her? All right. So I had posted a TikTok to at let's get haunted on TikTok where I was showing my Nancy Drew earrings that I had bought from right. Etsy. And I was like, oh, look, these are so cute. And I posted it and I guess I just like, I never, I don't really use TikTok. I don't really use my front facing camera anymore because my phone is just a giant piece of shit. And I was watching it play back and it's all like foggy and like it Mm -hmm. starts and stops at weird times. And it has like a totally shattered front screen, but I never got it fixed because like, why would I want to pay to get it fixed? Somebody commented and was like, why does this look like it was recorded on a potato or something? And I was like, oh, yeah, I have like a super shitty iPhone 7. Ha ha. And people were like shocked and they're commenting like, why would you have a fucking iPhone 7 from 2016? Right. In the year of our Lord 2022, my brother in Christ. And I was like, well, wow, that's a great question because I have AT&T. Every two years you can get a new phone. Two years ago. I had ordered a new phone and it came in the mail and it was sitting in a box in my room for maybe like two weeks. And I just like didn't have time, you know, like it takes forever to switch over to a new phone. They have to transfer data and shit. Yeah. When I finally open it, I realized they sent me the wrong phone. So I call AT&T and I was on hold for forever. This was I ordered it December of 2020. In oh, a, yeah, yeah. That was the worst time to Horrible. have to do any customer service for anything. Absolutely. It like, it's COVID, so we're not doing our jobs. That's what happened. Yeah. They were like, well, because it, it didn't arrive until, I want to say, end of January, beginning of February. And then I opened it two weeks after that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I call them and I'm like, hey, I ordered this phone back in December and you guys sent me the wrong phone. And they're like, well, our records show that it's the right phone. And I was like, well, I can send a picture to you. Like, it's the wrong phone. Right. And, and they, they just think you're a scammer because they're like, it's yes. been two weeks. So she's probably just broken this or something and now is trying to like get it replaced. Totally. And then I go back and forth, back and forth with the customer service person who could not give less of a shit. And they're transferring me to different people. And like some people are like having trouble understanding me. And then finally I get transferred to someone else. And they're like still not understanding. And then finally someone's like, well, you know that we only have a 30 day return policy and you're calling on day like 50 something. And I was like, okay, but I didn't even get it until after the 30 day window window was up so shouldn't that extend it and they were like no because that's not our problem we know it left our facility on this day that's when we start counting so long story short I just had this phone that I couldn't use Mm -hmm. it was the wrong phone and so I kept having to use my iPhone 7 I went into the AT&T store in person I was trying to explain my predicament and then finally after like 45 minutes of talking to that person they finally tell me oh by the way all AT&T like in-person stores are franchised so we can't even help you because you ordered from corporate because you ordered over the phone. And I'm like, why didn't, why wouldn't you tell me this at the very beginning? That's super annoying. I'm so sorry. Like I, 
Uh, yeah. I've actually had to go through a lot of things like that because I used to, like, when I was younger, I would break phones all the time. Maybe the younger generation doesn't remember this because I feel like the iPhones are, like, stronger now. But that shit is, like, it used to, back in, like, when we were in college, it was literally a glass. Yeah. Like, it's glass on both sides. So if you didn't have, like, an OtterBox case on it, people were like, wow, you must be very rich. Yeah. You know? Because <laughs> people, I would break my phone all the time. And then you would get drunk. Like, I feel like every time I got drunk or went to a festival, I would come back and my phone was broken. Oh, yeah. Or lose your phone. Or I remember like the small flip phones. I remember my Nokia in high school like went through the wash, you know, and then your life is just over. Like you've lost all your contacts because there was no laptop backup. Right. So I'm almost to the two year mark. Right. Because December of 2020, December of 2022. It's time for a new phone. It's time for a new phone. And I was like, I'm almost there. I'm fucking almost there. And it's just been progressively getting worse and worse and worse. There's no memory on it. So like I would load it up and you couldn't even see any of the icons because the memory had been used up so much that it was like trying to conserve memory. Then I went into AT&T and I was like, look, my mom and I are on a family plan. My mom takes really good care of her phone. Maybe like I can use her upgrade now and then she can use mine in December. I've done that. Yeah. I was like, mom, is this okay with you? And she's like, yeah, it's fine. So I go into AT&T and uh, tell that to the guy and the guy's being super fucking weird. He's like, like, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. Let me tell you what you want to do. You want to buy insurance on your phone because I didn't have insurance on my phone. No, because he just wants to collect the commission. Well, but this is the weird part. So he's like, you just want to get insurance on your phone. You're going to come back to me in three weeks so that corporate doesn't think it's suspicious. Come see me. You have an iPhone 7. It's old as fuck. They have to, by law, give you a similar phone like at something either the same or better and since we don't make iphone 7 anymore you'll probably get like an iphone 11 or 12 for 150 bucks just like the amount of the insurance claim and then when the iphone 14 comes out next month now you can trade in your iphone 11 because he's like iphone 7 has no trade-in value you'll get an iphone 11 you could trade it in and then we're gonna have a deal on the iphone 14s and then you can get an iphone 14 for like 400 bucks so this guy was like actually trying to help he was but here's the thing i don't have a phone my phone Mm -hmm. is totally annihilated now it shut off and i was trying to charge it in my house for like three hours and it wasn't working it would flash on flash off flash on flash off when people call they say that it rings but nothing happens on the screen this is too many steps i just want a new phone Mm -hmm. like i know that my mom is eligible for an upgrade i don't give a shit about the iphone 14 let's just process my upgrade and he wouldn't fucking do it he wouldn't do it and he was like no no no. look i make money only if you get a new phone so by me telling you this you need to trust me and i was like no i appreciate what you're trying to do but i don't have a phone here's well at first i was gonna say that guy was really cool i was like you know this is the fucking guy that like picked us up at area 51 that sleeps in a car that has a fucking flag that says don't tread on me like they're they're gonna be doing they're like living on their terms yeah they're like fuck the establishment yeah fuck at&t corporate this is what you're gonna do and now you have an iphone 14 for like four hundred dollars instead of two thousand right that guy's a divergent yeah however uh as someone who has done that before i have traded in for my dad's upgrade whatever that was several years ago that was back in the era of like you know breaking my phone on the weekends because i was like at a calvin harris concert right long time ago right um, my phone still thinks it's my dad. It's really weird. It's like it, it calls. So my dad's number is saved in my phone as like Papa uh-huh. with a bunch of emojis. So anytime I do like one of those like Shopify checkouts or anything like that, it'll say 
like uh, uh you know what i'm talking about where it's like you can type in your number and like it'll send you a text and then it'll like populate the form of whatever you're trying to buy online yes, with yeah. all of your previous information i'll do that and then it'll populate with all of my dad's information and send a receipt to my fucking no! father so now he can see that you're like buying buying stuff yeah yeah and it was like so he I got my when I got my hair blonde it's really expensive to go blonde if you have dark hair right right so the bill for it was like I don't know like 500 bucks or something like that and my dad gets a gets a sends me a text and he's like hey did you spend $500 at like XXXX whatever and he's like or is this a scam and I was just like fuck I'm trapped here because I don't want my parents to think I'm spending $500 at this place. Exactly. But I also don't want to say it's a scam and then me not do anything about that. And they think that I'm like not responsible. Yeah. You know, so it's like either way I look not responsible. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not it's not worth it. I don't know how to change that. Maybe someone here uh, who's listening to this podcast is like, here's what you guys are going to do. Don't tread on me. You're going to go (laughs) open up your settings and you're going to open up the you know what I mean? Right, right. That's what we need. Somebody comment. <laughs> so uh, basically for work purposes, I'm using a work phone that's like an iPhone SE from also 2016 so that people can call me for work. But apparently I'm just waiting like another. I think I'm going to wait two weeks, not three, because I'm almost I'm almost done one week now. So I think next week at the end of next week, I'll go back and make an insurance claim. This uh, this whole thing is just reminding me of a personal haunting that I never told, but like I'll tell have it. To t- no, I'll have to tell it on a different one because oh, it happened okay. a few weeks ago, and it was literally like at the level of you getting the credit card back from the lady who stole yours. What? And you didn't tell it? I just remembered it because I look uh, the the. I don't have a lot of space in my brain right now. And I feel like the priorities are like, get the podcast done, keep baby alive, yeah. keep relationship going, you know, like feed right, self. Right. And and so like anything that falls like outside of like the immediate, like keeping people and pets alive right. is like gets lost. You're literally operating on like Sims yeah. level. Like, okay, my health bar is going down because <laughs> right. I haven't had a grilled cheese in a while. <laughs> Let me go get a grilled cheese. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I'll have to tell because I feel like we were already at the end of the thing. But maybe the next episode. I'll okay. Tell it. I would like to shout out our donors Me for too. this episode. I'd like to give a big shout out to Peter Barker and Malik who donated $50. I'd also like to thank Keeks, Brad W., British Cyborg, Regimonic, Adri, Michael R., Brianne M., Elena B., Feet Sniffer 5000, oh. British Cyborg again, and Bork. I would like to thank Gentry B., Mason H., Lindsay L., Gentry B., Gentry B., Pete M, Chad P, Chris P, Owen F, Gentry B, and Garrett B. Thank you guys very much for your generous donations. We really appreciate all of the love that you guys give us. And we're going to have some new merch pretty soon. This is the first time that we're having like an actual legit company do it for us. And uh, I'm nervous because it's like way more expensive than, you know, me just going out and buying blanks and then like creating a shitty file on Photoshop and I'm not a graphic designer. And then like (laughs) asking someone who's like, God damn it, I don't want to do this. This is a waste of time to like do it for like 60 70 shirts for us right you guys stay tuned uh please please don't let our, our ship sink if you want more information on how to buy merch or how to donate to us just check 
the show notes for this episode. All the links will be there. Yeah. Yeah. Natalia, are you ready to get into this week's episode? Absolutely. I'm excited to see what you have for me, what you've come up with. Don't know where you get your information. It's all really, really good. I hope you like this one. This is one I've been considering doing for a while, so I'm very excited to get into it. And it's very fitting, Natalia, that you said, don't let our ship sink. Right. Don't tread on me. Right. Because today I'm kind of talking about something that might go along with that. (gasps) Natalia, let's talk about the 1940s. Let's do it. Globally, the 1940s was a period of chaos, international war, and change. World War II would officially begin on September 1st, 1939, with Germany's invasion of Poland. Poland, September 1939. The German foe begins its ruthless march of conquest and sets the stage for World War II. Poland's 34 million inhabitants, crushed, scattered, and enslaved. Tens of thousands of square miles of territory shrink before the movement of lightning-armored columns. Poland and the world learn the meaning of a grim new word, Blitzkrieg. Following this attack, Britain and France declared war on Germany, followed soon thereafter by Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and Canada. The U.S. would not officially become involved in World War II until the end of 1941 when something unprecedented happened on American soil. The Japanese bombing of the American naval base at Pearl Harbor in Honolulu, Hawaii. December 7, 1941. No American will ever forget this Sunday morning in Hawaii. Hawaii's bright Sunday becomes a black Sunday. High overhead, Jap raiders are on the loose. Without warning, they circle Pearl Harbor and the city of Honolulu. Surprise attack, born of infamy. Sirens screech the alarm too late. Homes of defenseless people become the targets of Japan's treachery. In all, four attacks are made. The wounded must be cared for. Quickly, first aid stations, staffed with doctors and nurses, spring into action. Untold numbers of civilians fall in the midst of Japan's surprise attack. On the streets, everywhere, can be seen the results of the onslaught. Countless automobiles are riddled with machine gun bullets. Wreckage is strewn across great areas. Civilians immediately begin combing the ruins. In these masses of twisted steel are found parts of Japanese aircraft that reveal important secrets of enemy bombs, radios, and planes. On Sunday, December 7, 1941, At 7.48 a.m. Hawaiian time, the Pearl Harbor Naval Base was attacked by 353 Imperial Japanese aircraft, which struck strategically in two waves. According to Wikipedia, of the eight U.S. Navy battleships present, all were damaged and four were completely sunk. The Japanese also sank or damaged three cruisers, three destroyers, an anti-aircraft training ship, and one mine layer. More than 180 U.S. aircraft were destroyed, but more importantly, 2,403 Americans were killed at Pearl Harbor and 1,178 others were wounded. President Franklin D. Roosevelt proclaimed December 7, 1941 as, quote, a date which will live on in infamy. December 7, 1941 a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. It will be recorded 
that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. Japan declared war on the United States immediately following this attack, and U.S. Congress responded the following day, December 8, 1941, by also declaring war. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya, Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. As Commander-in-Chief, of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. But always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Three days later, on December 11th, Japanese allies Germany and Italy would declare war on the U.S., which meant that the U.S. had to declare war on Germany and Italy, meaning the U.S. was now involved in World War II. This is reminding me of when I was younger. I remember after 9-11 happened, I was telling my brother, I was like, Are we, is there ever going to be a time where, like, on September 11th, we don't think of the Twin Towers? Or is there ever going to be a time where we don't... Uh, remember like what happened on September 11th because like still even to this day it's been 20 years now yeah. more and like a- a- on September 11th I always think about like right. oh this was the day the Twin Towers went down and my brother was like well what do you think of as December 7th and I was like oh. mm, I don't know what and he was like he was like well that was the attack on Pearl Harbor and everyone thought no one would ever forget that 
either you know that's a great point and i was like nick if you're listening to this what a great point yeah yeah you guys my brother he's a journalist he's a historian and he also went to law school and he's very single please help him yeah (laughs) (laughs) if he listens to this he's gonna be so mad at you (laughs) the bombing at pearl harbor was so devastating because the u.s was totally unprepared for it So for me as an American who like was not alive during this time, reading that the U.S. was unprepared for a war was pretty hard for me to conceive just because like the majority of our taxes go towards our military. Right. And it's like billions and billions of dollars, trillions of dollars every year, like numbers I cannot even conceive of Mm -hmm. we spend on our military. So reading that, I was like, that's fucking weird. Why would the U.S. not be ready for a war? So I kind of went down this rabbit hole trying to figure out why we were so unprepared for Pearl Harbor. Yeah, please tell me because this this is exactly what what I would be doing. Yes. On Google, like, why didn't we do this? And then, like, I'm reading all the stuff. And then eventually it probably turns into, like, a Nazi sympathizing article. And I'm like, okay, don't bring this up on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's very odd how that happens, right? So, Natalia, have you ever heard of the Hague Convention or the Hague Convention? I'm not sure. It's spelled H-A-G-U-E. I'm, I'm going to say Hague, Hague uh, Convention. No. Was it like the UN before the UN? Basically. So it, it's similar to the Geneva Convention. Right. So the Geneva Conventions and the Hague Conventions were a series of international treaties and declarations that spelled out the laws of war and what actions constitute war crimes moving forward. The 1907 Hague Convention resulted in several laws of war being added to the list, one of which said that no nation shall attack another without first formally declaring war. Because Pearl Harbor happened without a declaration of war and without explicit warning, the U.S. was caught unprepared and therefore suffered a horrific number of casualties. Pearl Harbor was later internationally determined to be a war crime, and several high-ranking members of the Japanese military were prosecuted for these crimes during the Tokyo trials of 1946. So rules of war is very interesting to me. Yeah, it just seems like... Who's going to enforce that? Because are they implying that somehow uh, you being like, we're declaring war on you and then dropping a bomb on someone is in some way more fair than just dropping a bomb on someone? That's what they're saying. So they're saying if you are going to devastate another country, you should at least give them a chance to defend themselves. So but then you're not going to win the war. Like, isn't the point of war to be like, I don't give a fuck about human life. I'm willing to kill in order to get what I want. That's like, the oxymoron. Are those people honestly going to be like, oh, let's just give them a chance to like get together. So that way it's more fair. Like, no, we're talking about the villains. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the oxymoron of rules of war. Right. Like the expression all is fair in love and war. Right. It's very it's just an interesting oxymoron because basically the Geneva Conventions and the Hague Conventions were trying to be like, we're civilized. We're, um, you know, going into the modern uh, world. We're in the 19th century now. And we want to make sure that moving forward, our war is like very structured and civilized and whatever, whatever. Right. Um knowing full well that there are definitely countries that have proxy wars to get around this, right? They'll like pay a, a country to right. like go into another country so that they don't have to be like, oh, it wasn't, you know, right. it wasn't us. Or they'll have like a terrorist group committed yeah. so that it's not uh, like affiliated with the actual government entity that's yeah. there. Yeah. Give guns to like, yeah, guerrilla fighters living in mountains or something. You yeah. know what I mean? So there are ways around this, which is also why it's so interesting to me just to say like here are the rules of war 
we don't follow like we're following them with an asterisk right like mm-hmm. we're paying other people to do our dirty work or whatever but we're like very you know clean and fair fighting and so that's why pearl harbor was so devastating so pearl harbor obviously super well-known event and i guess that most of our listeners are pretty familiar with it there's a lot of pop culture stuff surrounding pearl harbor right. very famous movie ben affleck and josh hartnett and you end up having to raise another man's child with a man and you know what but they're both hot and the real winner is that lady who got (laughs) to fuck both those people but yeah so most people are familiar with pearl harbor because of the pop culture references and even if you're not super familiar with like the history behind it everyone pretty much knows what it was but there were other perhaps lesser known attacks on the united states happening around this time for example Did you know, Natalia, that just over two months after Pearl Harbor on February 23rd, 1942, a Japanese submarine attacked Santa Barbara? Are you serious? Yes. What? Did, did, like, how did they attack? What do you mean? They, like, launched missiles on it? This is so weird. I don't know why. How come I've never heard of this? I know, especially us in L.A. living so close to Santa Barbara. It's very bizarre. So the story goes like this. Following Pearl Harbor, Japanese submarines continued to lurk in American waters, eventually making their way closer and closer to California's coast. During their time there, these submarines sank two merchant ships and damaged six others. Like, merchant ships as in... Like, carrying goods. Non-military ships. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there's a story of this one ship got shot at by a Japanese submarine, and they're like, oh, shit, well, maybe they've accidentally misidentified us as, like, a military ship. So they put up a white flag. They send out a distress signal. They're like, hey, stop firing at us. And the submarine is like, we don't give a fuck that you're not military and continues to shoot at them and, in fact, shoots at them with a torpedo. And by some, like, miracle, they happen to make their way into shallow water so that the submarine can't continue to follow them and ended up surviving. Oh, wow. But there were other ships that weren't so fortunate and two were sank and, like, people (gasps) died and six of them were damaged really badly, including the one that I was just talking about. This is crazy. I can't believe I've never heard of this. There's no memorial in Santa uh, Santa Barbara or anything? no. It's crazy. So the U.S. Navy, Air, and Sea Forces battled with these Japanese submarines in an attempt to prevent future attacks on American ships, which led to this like really weird thing where people living on California's coast sometimes would just look out over the water and literally see submarines and aircrafts just like shooting at each other. Okay, this is terrifying. But now I'm in no way implying that this is right. But now I understand why there was so much paranoia around having Japanese citizens on American soil. Because I remember there's been a few times, actually, we on our way back from Area 51, we passed one of these like internment camps. It was a Japanese internment camp. And they like had saved it as a way for us. It was like a museum. Like you could go and see it and see like how people had lived. And for those of you who don't know, back in, I believe in the 40s and maybe early 50s, they were people like they would take Japanese citizens away from their homes. Like you're just a family who's been living in San Francisco. Like you have a business there. You have a right to be there. You're an American citizen. And they would take you away from your home, be like, pack up all of your shit in a fucking trunk. We're going. We're taking you to essentially like a working prison. Yeah. Where you're going to live like in tiny little shacks. There's no running water between you. Yeah. It's a work. It's like a work camp. 
we're going to actually talk about that in a little bit. So I'm glad that you brought it up. All of this paranoia was like super ingrained in every single person living on the coast. They had just seen this devastating attack on Pearl Harbor. Now they can literally look out over the ocean and see submarines and U.S. aircraft shooting at each other. There were submarines shooting and in some cases um, sinking Mm -hmm. merchant ships that had nothing to do with war. Mm -hmm. So everyone's just super fucking paranoid and like scared. And they think like everyone's a spy and they don't know what's going on. And I'm sure the Japanese were like, fuck the Americans. They're taking people who are Japanese who are citizens and have the right to be there and putting them in work camps like they're racist they're like assholes like it's just a bad a bad, a bad, look bad for situation yeah. absolutely so on February 23rd 1942 the Japanese government ordered one of their submarines to shell the California coast which means shoot at the California coast captain by commander Kozo Nishino The nearly 400-foot submarine containing 101 Japanese officers and men stealthily made its way along Santa Barbara's coastline until it stopped at the Elwood Oil Field, which is located about 12 miles west offshore of Santa Barbara City. According to Wikipedia, at around 7 p.m., the submarine came to a stop opposite the oil field on the Gaviota Coast. Commander Nishino ordered the deck guns readied for action. Its crew took aim at a fuel tank just beyond the beach and opened fire, with the first rounds landing near a storage facility. The oil field's workmen had mostly left for the day, but a skeleton crew on duty heard the rounds hit. At first, they took the noises to be an internal explosion until one man spotted the submarine off the coast firing at them. Wait, okay, so this is in Santa Barbara? Yes. So off the coast of Santa Barbara, because you know there's tons of oil in the ocean underground off the coast of Santa Barbara. In fact, some of it leaches out naturally. Yeah, and you get it on your feet. I've been to Santa Barbara before, and like you're walking on the beach, and it's super picturesque, and you're like, ooh, I'm Gigi Hadid right now. Yeah, yeah. And then you get, like, you have tar all over your feet when you leave. And they, like, even the hotel we were staying at had, like, bottles that had some sort of solution in them where after you get out of the ocean, you can, like, put it on your feet to dissolve the tar. That's how often people got it on their feet right and you could be walking along the beach and then all of a sudden you just see like that rainbow design on the sand yeah. on the wet sand because there's just oil, oil floating yeah. yeah exactly so yes yeah, so there was this um basically oil facility located offshore and a bunch of people worked on it during the day it was it's like a big source of money for the economy of santa barbara in recent years maybe not so much because we've cut back on oil extraction but definitely in the 40s this was like essential um, they did not have electric vehicles. They did not have a lot of clean access to clean energy. This was like big, a big deal. And this happened during a time where like the main shift had already gone home. There's a skeleton crew working. All of a sudden, they just start hearing these explosions. And they're thinking, oh, this is some sort of industrial accident that's occurring. Like maybe one of these tankers built up some sort of toxic gas and now it's like on the verge of exploding. And then one of them turns and looks out at the um, like in the distance at the ocean and they literally see a submarine that is like just peeking above the waves with its gunner pointed right at them shooting at them. Which is terrifying. Yeah. An oiler named G. Brown later told reporters that the enemy submarine looked so big to him that he thought it must actually be a cruiser or a destroyer until he realized that only one gun was firing. Nishino soon ordered his men to aim at the second fuel storage tank. 
Brown and the others called the police as the Japanese shells continued to fall around them. But because like he's in a little submarine and he's bouncing along the waves and there's only one gun at the top, they didn't really have a lot of success. They didn't blow up everything that they wanted to. They were just kind of firing at different things and freaking everybody out. Mm. One round actually even passed over this oil area and whizzed by a small motel in the area that was really popular at the time. It was called Wheeler's Inn. And the owner, Lawrence Wheeler, had no clue what was going on. Um, he's like inside serving patrons dinner and stuff. And then he starts hearing these explosions and he's like, what the fuck? He goes outside to look and this bullet just whizzes by his head and like hits part of his building. So he calls the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office and is like, what the fuck is going on? There's a submarine that's shooting at like random citizens Mm -hmm. just like living their lives. And a deputy sheriff assured him that, oh, American warplanes, they're already on their way. Don't worry. Like, we're going to take care of this. But no warplanes ended up coming because, yet again, the U.S. had not learned its lesson from Pearl Harbor and they were totally unprepared. What? What? I just, I can't. Yeah, it's really hard for me to imagine that. So weird. Maybe that's why they're so overprepared now because they're like, you know what? Two times we really shit the bed. Yeah, right. Like, first time Pearl Harbor, shame on you. Right. Okay shooting at citizens in Santa Barbara. All right, that was our bad. Like, yeah. we should have known. Right. So now we're going to spend trillions of dollars every year of American taxpayer money on having, like, a Oakley really big sunglasses. military. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Japanese shells destroyed a derrick and a pump house, and the Elwood Pier and a catwalk suffered minor damage. After 20 minutes, the gunners ceased fire and the submarines sailed away. Estimates of the number of explosive shells fired range from 12 to 25. Although he caused only light damage, Commander Nishino and his men had achieved their main purpose, which was to spread fear along the American West Coast. Yeah, I was just about to ask. I was going to be like, you know, what was their end goal with that? Was this like a suicide mission for this submarine? Or were they just like, okay, we're going to go over here and we're just going to freak everyone out just to like prove a point? I don't know that there's really an answer that I found online, but most people seem to agree. Like there's no way they could have done significant like damage using only their one gun on top of their submarine like it's just not really feasible for them to have done that because they're literally in the ocean that Mm -hmm. has like rocking waves and you're bouncing up and down so their aim can't be that good so a lot of people think okay this was just an attempt for them to be like look what we can do because prior to Pearl Harbor apparently Franklin Roosevelt had made some comment about like oh you know we don't they don't have the technology to fly straight from Japan Mm. to U.S. soil because it's a really big distance so then they were showing like hey you need to take us seriously yes like look at us go yeah because like in the context of modern day America now I would consider that like sending just you know a singular submarine over to shoot at a citizen like a citizen population area whatever like Santa Barbara it's like you're poking the bear like are you just trying to get um, like the to arise out of yeah are you just trying to awake the hornet's nest because you're gonna get rocked right yeah so but it makes sense I guess because back then you're saying they were super unprepared totally so this is like a strategic move of being like hey you need to either surrender to what we're doing or you need to enter this war so we can kick your ass because we're fucking prepared yes exactly that's exactly right So this attack, like you pointed out earlier, created a ton of paranoia. 
And some Californians living in the nearby city of Montecito even reported to police that they had seen quote-unquote signal lights coming from around their neighborhood shortly before the attack, the implication being that the Japanese must have spies living in California to aid in current and future attacks. Oh, fuck. While these reports of signal lights were never substantiated, the attack at Santa Barbara would later be used as one of the reasons justifying the internment of 120,000 Japanese Americans living in California. Yeah. So everyone's super fucking paranoid. It's the 40s. There's no internet. There's no social media. You can't be like, oh, yeah, everyone. I think nowadays we kind of understand like everybody is kind of the same. Like we talk about being a global citizen. Like everybody is pretty much the same we're all human we all try to not that different yeah we run away from pain towards pleasure that's like our human instinct is to survive right so it's a lot harder i think for governments to demonize another population like most people are pretty much not on board with war anymore because everyone everyone understands that the actions of the government don't reflect the actions of the citizens yeah Uh, i feel pretty confident in saying that but in the 40s all they have is like one radio station, the newspaper, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt's like fireside chats that he did over the radio. That's the only information you're getting. So it was way easier to kind of spread fear and propaganda and Mm -hmm. also to feel like you have no clue what's going on. It was like a very scary time to be alive. Right. And then like you add in that now there's been an attack on American soil and you're like, oh shit, like maybe this is something to be worried about. And uh, yeah, and I think too, the fact that the Hague Convention laws of war were not being followed, I think a lot of people were really shocked by that, even though nowadays, I think maybe we're all just so jaded and we do have access to information. So we know that there are sneaky ways to not follow these rules. But back in the day, I think they were like, what the fuck? We're because like, We're men of honor. Right? Yeah. yeah. My word is is me as a man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So this was like super shocking. They're like, your handshake means everything to me. Like it, it was yeah. like a big deal. It was a gentleman's hand. Yeah. Like you could form contracts on a handshake and people wouldn't lie about it later. Right. Because they're like, who would want to damage their reputation as a man? Yeah. That's all you have. Yeah, exactly. So because of that, people were super fucking freaking out. Everyone, nobody wants to be shot at in their like small little inn that they're running off the coast of Santa Barbara. Right. They didn't sign up for that. Right. They specifically chose to be an innkeeper in Santa Barbara to avoid that fate. Yeah. To live like a simple life <laughs> yeah. of an innkeeper. Like I just picture a man in a lighthouse being like what the fuck is happening right, like in like a long pajamas with like one of those like nightcaps <laughs> yeah, on <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> so basically a bunch of people living in Montecito which now is a super wealthy area like mm-hmm. Oprah lives there and yeah. whatever I'm sure a bunch of other people but I only know that Oprah lives there right <laughs> um, but at the time it was probably like, like ranches not, yeah ranches and stuff so people start reporting hey I saw these weird lights in the sky before this submarine attack I think that there must be Japanese citizens or Japanese spies that are in my area that are like kind of signaling to the submarine like hey now like we're gonna shoot now or this is where the oil derrick is or whatever Mm. you know like this is where whatever is and this was happening all up and down the west coast there were a bunch of attacks on merchant ships over off San Francisco as well Mm -hmm. and so there were just everyone was super paranoid and because of that the California state government was like, okay, you know what? We're just going to have to round up all of the Japanese citizens and nationals that are living on our soils, ship them off to these camps. And they felt totally justified in doing Mm -hmm. that because they were like, clearly there's somebody here that's like telling them, hey, right now, this is the time to attack because not the U.S. Air Force didn't even have time to come in and like take care of business. Yeah. 
Well, I think the the Air Force was like invented during World War II, right? Probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably. So I think, you know, like we now know there's no justification for rounding up people and putting them in like labor camps and internment camps. There's no justification. Not at all. But also like you have to wonder if your whole fear is that Japanese citizens perhaps are Japanese spies communicating with the Japanese government then, like, isn't putting them all in an internment camp just, like, giving them an office space to conduct business? I mean, if you're so fucking paranoid that, like, you want to cut off communication between the spies and whatever, it's, like, doesn't really make sense to put them all together. I agree, yeah. And like you said, these were terrible conditions at these internment camps. I actually think we could do an entire episode just on the hauntings of these camps. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm not going super in-depth into it, but just to give you guys an idea, a lot of these camps were actually on Native American reservations because the federal government was like, let's pick a place that has no running water, that's like super remote in the middle of the California desert. And the Native American tribes were like, we don't fucking want these internment camps (laughs) here. Like the whole point is that you're supposed to leave us alone on these reservations. And the federal government was like, fuck you, like mind your business (laughs) and set up these giant like barbed wire fences and then had these structures that had no running water, no privacy. It's and a prison camp. It was a prison camp. And even if you could escape, you were in the middle of the desert. You know, like how far are you really going to make it with no water, no resources, no food? And a lot of these camps received no like federal funding. Mm-hmm. So they had to grow their own food. They had yeah. to like create their own gardens and yeah. housing structures. And like you said, we actually visited Manzanar, mm-hmm. which was the uh, first internment camp ever in California. Yeah, we visited it and they were showing like how the prisoners had created these beautiful Japanese gardens mm-hmm. from it, nothing, from nothing. Yeah. And to me, it's just like the resilience of the human spirit. Eventually, these internment camps were dismantled and like everyone was, quote unquote, allowed to go back to their lives. But what was really left? You know, like a lot of these people were business owners, homeowners, and then they got taken from all of that. And when they came back, there was nothing left for them. Like that stuff had already been given away to other people or like was dilapidated and falling down. And the U.S. did end up paying reparations to Japanese citizens that were in these camps. But like too little too late. You know what I mean? Like, how about you just don't take people away from their livelihoods in the first place? Yeah. Members of Congress and distinguished guests, my fellow Americans, We gather here today to right a grave wrong. More than 40 years ago, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry living in the United States were forcibly removed from their homes and placed in makeshift internment camps. This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race, for these 120,000 were Americans of Japanese descent. Congressman Norman Mineta, with us today, was 10 years old when his family was interned. In the congressman's words, my own family was sent first to Santa Anita Racetrack. We showered in the horse paddocks. Some families lived in converted stables, others in hastily thrown together barracks. We were then moved to Heart Mountain, Wyoming, where our entire family lived in one small room of a rude tar paper barrack. Like so many tens of thousands of others, the members of the Mineta family lived in those conditions not for a matter of weeks or months, but for three long years. The legislation that I am about to sign provides for a restitution payment to each of the 60,000 survivors. 
Oh my God. So it created like a lot of like racist feelings where people felt really justified in being openly racist. Fuck, man. Just, a, yeah, I can't yeah. even imagine what that's like. And like you said earlier, Manzanar and the other nine military camps where Japanese nationals and Japanese American citizens alike were forced to relocate happened between 1942 and 1945. And they really need their own episode. But I mentioned them in this episode to really illustrate how terrified, paranoid and defensive the United States was in 1942. And many Californians even fled their homes altogether, abandoning all of their belongings overnight and moving inland to states like Nevada and Colorado because they were convinced that any city in California, especially the coastal ones, could become the next Pearl Harbor. I don't know. I think about that now. I'm like, okay, like L.A. is definitely one of those cities that would be hit. It would be like London, L.A., maybe Houston, New York City, New York. Yeah, there would be like probably Tokyo, like all of these like big centers where there's tons of commerce going on yeah and like yeah so these big economic centers that like represent our country right. i thought about this because long beach is like a place uh that's not too far from la it's probably like a 40 minute drive from here and that's a place where definitely i think would get attacked because it would cut off like a lifeline of supplies to this country but like what's gonna keep a, a nuclear weapon from hitting you know, if it strays like a fraction of an inch somewhere, you know, when it's leaving whatever the fuck country, it could totally hit like L.A. or Vegas or what. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. No one's safe. So maybe we can all sort of sympathize with citizens in the 1940s who were just trying to fucking live their lives. And now all of a sudden everyone's like, we could die at any moment. Yeah. Like I already everyone's have scared. To- I already have to hold up my socks with a fucking garter. Yeah. And now I have to worry about a bomb coming to hit me while I'm sleeping in my bed. While I'm plowing my field. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it is in this wild, chaotic, dark, and suspicious time that this week's story takes place. Natalia, have you ever heard of the Battle of Los Angeles? What? Is this... Wait, is there a movie called that? I Probably, but I think it's probably, like, not. Is this, like, about UFOs? Okay, let me tell you about the Battle of Los Angeles, (gasps) because we live in L.A., and I'm very surprised there are no monuments to this battle anywhere in the city. February 25th. 1942, just two days after Commander Nishino's submarine fired upon California's coastline in Santa Barbara, another wartime incident would occur. The details of this event were so inexplicable and bizarre that it would quickly and quietly be brushed under the rug by the U.S. government in the hopes that it would never be discussed ever again. Our story really begins the night before the incident on February 24th, 1942, when thousands of air raid wardens are called to their battle posts throughout L.A. County at 7.18 p.m. in response to a tip about the quote-unquote imminent threat of an attack by the Japanese. A little over three hours later, that alert is lifted at 10.23 p.m., and it appears that there will be no attack after all. But then, in the early morning hours, shortly after 2 a.m. on the 25th, air raid sirens pierced through the skies of Los Angeles once again. L.A.'s many bright landmarks and neighborhoods suddenly fell dark under a citywide blackout. A military radar had picked up what appeared to be an enemy aircraft flying around 120 miles or so west of Los Angeles over the oceans. Through the deep darkness, frightened citizens watched from their bedroom windows as impossibly bright military-grade searchlights swept the stars, manned from the ground by armed troops stationed along the west coast with anti-aircraft guns. The air was hushed, tense, thick with anxiety. 
Would tonight be the night the Japanese bombed one of California's most prosperous cities? Families huddled together in the corners of their homes, arms covering their heads, bracing for impact. All remained quiet in the city, save for the ticking of the family clock on the mantel. The minutes continued trickling by. The searchlights continued sweeping the skies. Parents continued covering their children with their own bodies to protect them from any debris that might rain down during an attack. Then, just after 3 a.m., troops in Santa Monica unleashed machine gun fire into the air, apparently having spotted something flying above them. What? Santa Monica? This is insane. Santa Monica. Isn't this crazy? Soon after the first shots pierced the sky, other troops stationed throughout Los Angeles County joined in, all converging over one spot in particular, firing 50 caliber anti-aircraft bullets into the night sky. Emergency calls began flooding local police stations, with citizens from all over reporting the horrors that they were witnessing. Frightened Angelinos reported seeing Japanese aircraft flying in a formation over downtown L.A. Oh, my God. Bombs crashing to the ground in brilliant bursts of light and sound. Wait, you're saying that the Japanese bombed downtown L.A. and I've never heard of this? Some callers even reported witnessing paratroopers falling from the sky, weapons strapped to their chests as they floated down ready to attack. Callers living in Hollywood desperately begged police for help after a Japanese plane crashed into the street before partially exploding. What? I feel like you're going to tell me, oh, but it ended up all being, it was a dream. Like, I, how is it that I've never heard of any of this? This is, this is absolutely bananas. And the terror and calamity continued for about an hour. According to accounts preserved at library.ca.gov, one witness put the number of attacking Japanese planes at 50. Another witness observed three enemy aircraft shot down over the ocean, while another witness watched a battery near Vermont Avenue take down another. Other witnesses reported seeing balloons flying in between the enemy planes, and still others reported swarms of planes of all possible sizes, numbering from one to several hundred, traveling in altitudes which ranged from a few thousand feet to more than 20,000, and flying at speeds which were said to have varied from very slow to over 200 miles per hour. According to a report published to the Los Angeles Almanac, frightened drivers speeding through darkened streets trying to escape the war zone collided with one another, resulting in three traffic fatalities. As many as three other persons were reported to have died from fatal heart attacks due to how intense and terrifying the battle was. When a ceasefire was ordered, anti-aircraft gunners had expended more than 1,400 rounds of ammunition over the city, causing quite a bit of damage to structures on the ground. Many Angelinos believed that they were going to see a full-fledged Japanese invasion force lying offshore when daylight broke. By daylight, however, citizens were shocked to walk out of their homes and find nothing. No Japanese ships laying off the coast, no downed enemy aircraft were found, and no enemy bomb damage was reported. Confused and embarrassed authorities, with no explanation for the morning's events, focused instead on arresting 20 Japanese Americans for allegedly trying to signal the mysterious enemy aircraft. Wait, you're saying that after all of that shit happened, in the morning they woke up and there was no evidence of it? Yes. So, Like there's no down buildings, there's no, there's no debris anywhere... 
Basically, like there were millions, there's millions of people that live in LA now, right? Yeah. But even at the time in the 40s, there were still millions of people living in LA. It's one of the largest cities in California. And people were calling in reporting like, I am literally watching as an aircraft is crashing into Vermont Avenue and exploding in the middle of the street. There are paratroopers raining down in downtown LA, like chasing me. Like some people had said, oh my God, like I'm hiding right now. There's a paratrooper that's like been chasing me. There were all of these people trying to escape the city, just like crashing into buildings, crashing into each other. People were dying from from that. There's debris raining down. There's explosions over the sky. There's these bright lights. People are looking up and seeing literally airplanes flying in a V formation. They're seeing balloons and zeppelins and like just shit all over the sky. What the fuck? And then they wake up in the morning and they realize like, yes, there's damage, but there is no evidence of a crashed plane that they had just seen the night, the night before. There is no evidence of paratroopers anywhere that they had just physically looked into the eyes of these men as they were coming, like floating down with their parachutes. Okay. Nothing. <sighs> and millions of witnesses. Jesus Christ. I don't want to I don't want to think this thought, but I just got to say it because I'm sure everyone else is thinking it. Could there actually have been like spies or something that called in to the to police and just made up these accounts just to like fucking test what our military response would be and then we just like panicked and everyone yeah. like showed their asses right like showed their true colors that they right. could handle it but it's weird right like how are millions of people seeing something happening and then they wake up in the morning and there's nothing there it's very eerie it's yeah there it's not adding up at all right something's missing here so according to History.com, a statement from the Army's Western Defense Command read, Although reports were conflicting and every effort is being made to ascertain the facts, it is clear that no bombs were dropped and no planes were shot down. While no remnants of aircraft, paratroopers, balloons, or bombs were ever found, friendly fire had caused a significant amount of damage to many neighborhoods in Los Angeles. According to records preserved by History.com, Anti-aircraft shrapnel rained down across the city, shattering windows and ripping through buildings. One dud, so like a bomb that didn't explode, careened into a Long Beach golf course, and several residents had their homes partially destroyed by three-inch artillery shells. Citizens and military personnel alike were left baffled. Could they really have imagined everything they had seen? Angelinos turned to the radio and newspapers, hoping for some sort of explanation about what had happened. Natalia, I'd like us to listen to the actual radio broadcast by CBS News Report from February 25th, 1942. Yeah, because I, I don't know right now. It just seems like maybe the U.S. government said all this shit happened so that they could like justify whatever their next move was, you know? like It's very suspicious. Like this whole thing is just so baffling. And it wasn't just citizens that reported this. It was also like the people that were manning the like anti-aircraft guns that are stationed along the coast. Those American citizens and military personnel we're also seeing shit and shooting at the sky. You know right. what I mean? Let's listen to this original broadcast. The News of the World, Wednesday, February 25th. Once again, Columbia's correspondents in world capitals and in the fighting zones in the Western Pacific are ready to give you the latest news direct by shortwave radio. And now for news of our own West Coast, we take you to Los Angeles and the report of Byron Palmer. Anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout 
ordered by the Fourth Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. The unidentified object, which some sources thought might be a blimp, moved slowly down the Pacific coast from Santa Monica and disappeared south of Long Beach. Army officials declined to comment on the possibility that the object might have been a blimp. However, it required nearly 30 minutes to travel some 25 miles, far slower than an airplane. Watchers on the rooftop of the Columbia Broadcasting Building in the heart of Hollywood could plainly see the flashes of guns and searchlights sweeping the skies in a white arc along the coastal area. Concussion of the shells could be felt in downtown Los Angeles, 15 miles away. U.S. Army planes quickly took to the dark skies, but whether they contacted the object has not been announced. Army officials say they will not comment until they receive a full report of the action. Although some watchers say they saw airplanes in the air, semi-official sources say they probably were the U.S. Army's pursuit. Several observers say they saw one or more planes spotlighted by 20 or 30 searchlights. The object moved southward, presumably over Huntington Park at the western edge of Los Angeles, and on southward to about Long Beach on the coast. By 3.30 a.m., observers said the object appeared to be over the south of Long Beach. Searchlights closely followed the object down the coast and kept it centered in their glare. Shells frequently could be seen bursting near the object, but none appeared to hit it. The shooting stopped about 3.30 a.m. The shooting brought warfare to the front door of this city of a million and a quarter population for the first time since December 7th. Already it was alert to the presence off the Southern California coast of a Japanese submarine which had pumped 25 shells into an oil field north of Santa Barbara Monday evening. Because of the presence of the submarine, a three-hour alert was ordered at dusk last night, and civilian authorities stood at their posts while the Army and Navy continued their search for the submersible. The evening alert ended at 10.23 p.m., but another was sounded at 2.22 a.m., and the blackout followed within three minutes. It covered Los Angeles County from Santa Monica to Pomona. At 2.27, all Southern California radio stations were ordered off the air except those in San Diego. Approximately 20 minutes after the firing died down, the ship returned and headed westward from Long Beach toward Santa Monica. The guns went into action again, hurling round after round of shells at the object. The second barrage appeared to be closer to downtown Los Angeles, since watchers could hear the concussion of the guns more clearly, and the flash of bursting shells was brighter. Then the ship disappeared for the second time over the ocean. We return you now to CBS in New York. Natalia, what do you think of this radio broadcast? First of all, it's kind of cool that we have this yeah, record awesome. preserved. I have a lot of thoughts. So when I was first listening to it and he was calling it an unidentified object, then I was like, okay, now this makes more sense. I get it. So it kind of seems like if we're taking into what you said, which is like a more like emotional account of what happened from people who witnessed it, and comparing it with this radio broadcast, which is like a more professional trying to be uh, not biased account, right. even though it are, it is biased, obviously, it sounds like perhaps it was like a mix, like someone saw an unidentified object, 
which you know let's call it what it is let's call it spade a spade they saw an alien yeah <laughs> and people were like what the fuck is that like is you know and they're paranoid because there's been like a japanese attack on american soil recently and this thing happened in santa barbara so they're assuming that this is some sort of military craft from you know one of the forces that's not an allied force or something right and perhaps the military caught on to that i'm assuming that the military would know about that before citizens would know about it right so maybe the aircraft that they were seeing was shooting at it was like american like friendly fire you know and then it's just pandemonium because everyone's really scared and like they don't have any information because the government's like hey don't radio broadcast right now because if this is an enemy force we don't want them to be able to hear the radio and like know what we know you yeah know? yeah so it's like they're just trying to do radio silence and like figure out what um is going on this is crazy because my mind was going everywhere i was like is this like salem witch trials where it's like everyone's super paranoid and scared and so they think they're seeing stuff that's not actually happening and then I don't know. It's all around crazy. And I think the confusion that you and I are feeling right now is just a fraction of what the people living in L.A. in 1942 were feeling because they're like they're certain that they have seen an, a full fledged enemy attack on their soil. And then in the morning they wake up. They don't fucking see anything. They're listening to the radio because like we talked about, they don't have social media. No one has like camera phones. So it's not like there's any like on the ground footage from just regular ass people. So they're depending on these formal channels of communication like radio and newspaper to figure out what the fuck happened the night before. So the LA Examiner published the following in an article that same morning. And I'd like you to read it to our listeners. Allie, Allie is showing me a what looks like a newspaper clipping. Mm -hmm. And it says, one plane reported down on Vermont Avenue by gunfire. Within two hours after anti-aircraft activity roared over Los Angeles at 3.10 a.m. today, one plane was reported shot down at 180th Street and Vermont Avenue. The initial report received by the 77th Street Police Station did not disclose whether it was an enemy craft. Unconfirmed was the report of two others shot down. At 43rd Street and Western Avenue, it was also reported some object hit the street, but it was not immediately known whether it was a bomb. Anti-aircraft guns, fighter planes, and huge searchlights were thrown into action in the Los Angeles area at 3.10 a.m. today as unidentified planes roared over vital defense areas. The rumbling of guns, flashes of their shells bursting, and the dropping of flares were heard and seen until 3.45 o'clock. There was a 15-minute lull, and then the activity continued for almost an hour. Reports that a civilian had seen three planes shot down over the ocean were not confirmed by either Army or Navy sources. The planes, their numbers reported by civilian witnesses to be as high as 50, apparently swung south of Santa Monica, roared towards Westwood, and then followed an arc course, moving over vital defense areas in the Huntington Park, Downey, and Long Beach areas. Unconfirmed also were reports of bombings in several areas. Center of the action seemed to be over the Long Beach section, although it was intense in the San Pedro, Huntington Park, and Downey areas. The concussion of the big guns at Fort MacArthur rumbled through the Los Angeles Harbor area as citizens awakened by the screech of air raid sirens paced their houses in wonder. 
As the army moved swiftly to action within 45 minutes of the air raid warning, reports began to filter into police headquarters of possible fifth column, traitors and spies, activities. Los Angeles police reported some Japanese had been arrested during the blackout in the Venice area. In the La Brea Hills section, alternate green and white light flashes brought the belief that signals might have been sent to the enemy. Los Angeles' new air raid sirens were sounded at 2.27 o'clock after a secondary precaution had been ordered only four minutes before. The flash of red light, the air raid signal, was given by the air raid warning service, which said it could give no other information. So, Natalia, what do you think of that article that you just read? It, so- it still sounds like the newspaper doesn't even know what's going on, right? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it could be that these people were so scared. Like, I know if I all of a sudden heard, if I got a fun alert on my phone that was like, hey, there's about to be an air raid in L.A., I'm sure I would see a lot of scary shit over the next hour and a half even if it wasn't an air, like related to an air raid. It would be like every single person I saw walking down the street is suspicious. Right. You know? Yeah, like, like why is this person outside while the air raid siren's going? They must be a spy. Yeah, exactly. Like what is this, you know, plane flying overhead? Did I just hear something? Is there someone in my backyard? Like wh- what's going on, right? Um, so I could see how that would like just the alarm going off would heighten the paranoia, but it's pretty fucking hard to imagine that you see a plane crash yes. into an intersection. Yes. I and know. That's, burst to flames. That's crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, how could you possibly... You could imagine, like you said, you could imagine, oh my God, I think I saw a light flicker over there. So there must be like a, a spy that's signaling to the enemy. Or, oh, I heard this explosion and... You know, it actually what it was, it's like when people mistake fireworks for gunfire, right? Yeah. Like I could see some of those misunderstandings, but paratroopers raining down on downtown LA, how do you imagine that? Like a, a, an aircraft crashing into Vermont Avenue and exploding, how do you imagine that? Right. It's very interesting. So the Thursday morning edition of the Los Angeles Times, published on February 26, 1942, featured an entire page dedicated to pictures compiled after the aftermath of the battle. The article was entitled Searchlights and Anti-Aircraft Guns Comb Sky During Alarm. I'm going to post these pictures to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram for those who want to follow along with the episode. But for us right now, Natalia, I'm going to show you some of these photos from this article. And I'd like you to read the caption underneath each photo and maybe like just give a brief description to our audience. This first picture I'm going to show you is the most famous from the Battle of Los Angeles. You've probably seen this before and just thought it was like a photoshopped like movie poster. Oh, yeah, I've seen this for sure. And I did think it was a photoshopped movie poster. Wow. Yeah. So what I'm looking at is just a black and white photo of a bunch of lights in the sky. And then there's what looks like, you know, okay. So, you know, at the beginning, before you see a movie, it's like, dun, 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 yeah. like the Fox, Fox searchlight. searchlight pictures. And you see all those like fucking searchlights go up in the sky. It looks like that. Exactly. B- but then instead of it being like uh, an intro to a movie, it's like just a, just a, like, we don't know what we're looking at. Exactly. <laughs> Can you read the caption underneath? It says, seeking out object, scores of searchlights build a wigwam of light beams over Los Angeles early yesterday morning during the alarm. This picture taken during blackout shows nine beams converging on an object in the sky in Culver City area. 
The blobs of light, which show at apex of boom angles, were made by anti-aircraft shells. So what they're saying is that there was some unidentified object in the sky and all of these searchlights are converging on that one object. And then the bursts of light you see around it are anti-aircraft shells exploding. Oh, okay. So then the thing that I thought they were converging on is actually... It, that is that is an anti-aircraft shell, but I, I can't really see what they're converging on. So the thing they're converging on is supposed to be the unidentified flying object. Mm. But it's hard to tell what it is because it's like a shitty black and white photo from 1942. Right. So, But there's definitely, it looks like there's something in the middle of all those searchlight beams, right? We just yeah. don't, we just can't tell what it is. Right. Now I'm seeing a black and white photo of like a 1940s woman holding what looks like a pillow or something. And she's, uh, her hand is like ripping something of the pillow. The caption says, close one. Mrs. Blanche Sedgwick. Okay, that's like the what her name should be. Yeah, like that's the most <laughs> 1940s housewife name. Close one. Miss Blanche Sedgwick and niece Josie Duffy got up to watch firing and escaped possible injury when shell fragment hit. Miss H.G. Landis examines missile. Oh, so maybe she's like holding a piece of a missile. Yeah. So basically, like these two people were in their house in L.A., got up to look at the window to be like, what the fuck's going on? What Mm -hmm. are all these explosions? And then as they got up from their beds, uh, a piece of a missile crashed through the roof and landed on the bed. Oh, my God. They would have died. Yeah. Wow. This next picture is another black and white. Like it's a 1940s man who's wearing like the Lucky Charms man hat. Yeah. And like a big wool coat. And he's looking at the fender on his 1940s vehicle. And yeah, there's bullet holes in it. The caption says, markings. Hugh Landis of 1738 West 43rd Place points to holes made in his car as it stood in the garage by fragments of anti-aircraft shell that hit nearby. And then there's another photo, black and white, of right above a vanity in the corner, there is a hole. And the caption says, bedroom pierced. Here is damage done to bedroom in home of Victor L. Norman of 2036 Easy Avenue, Long Beach, when anti-aircraft shrapnel pierced dwelling. The next photo is what looks like uh, a cop, and he's on all fours looking at uh, something on the sidewalk. And it says, deep one, motorcycle officer Bobby Clark reaches into hole caused by dud shell in driveway of 1337 Maple Street, Santa Monica. Shell was recovered. The next photo is, again, a 1940s man looking at what appears to be uh, like some sort of giant bullet shell. It says, unexploded. Lieutenant L.E. Richards holds part of an unexploded shell found after digging search near Rancho. Well, he should not be holding that, I would yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. What a, like, time capsule. Yeah, so I I just think it's really cool. I love seeing primary sources. I love seeing, like, the old newspaper clippings and the old radio broadcast because it, it really brings it to life for you. Like, this isn't just, like, a second or third hand account. Like, this yeah. is literally what people were reporting at the yeah. time it was happening. It's hard to imagine things like this happening because our world is so, so different. But to see what the quality of the photographs is to see what the quality of the radio was to see how people dressed and how formal and just different everything was like it it allows you to kind of peek into how something like this could have happened yeah it's such a crazy slice of life that like is so alien from our own now even though this wasn't that long ago the 40s wasn't that long ago 
So several first-person accounts of the Battle of Los Angeles were published by Carol Adele Kelly in her book, Voices of My Comrades, America's Reserve Officers Remember World War II. Her book is split into different chapters, each one dedicated to a different incident during World War II. Each chapter is entirely made up of quotes, interviews, and excerpts from letters of those who were actually there during the event, written during the event. So like written either during the event or just after the event. Wow. It's a really cool fucking book. If you guys want to buy it, it was about 30 bucks on uh, Google Books. And I bought it. Um, go support her because I just thought that was really cool. Like she took lots of different scraps of letters and like interviewed people and, yeah. and stuff and then just compiled it into this book. A haunted book. Right. Exactly. With very little context too, which I like because she's not really interjecting her opinion. She'll just be like, okay, here's a section about this, about Pearl Harbor. Here's like firsthand accounts. Here's a section about right. like the shelling of Elwood oil field off Santa Barbara. Firsthand accounts. Yeah. And she has a section on the Battle of Los Angeles. So for her section on the Battle of Los Angeles, excerpts from four different letters, each written by different military personnel, are published. In her introduction to the chapter, Kelly writes that the letters were addressed to the 16-year-old son of a captain at Greenville Flying School in Mississippi. The son, whose name was Henning, had written to these four soldiers who had been under his father's command during the Battle of Los Angeles, asking them about the incident. I will now read to you the excerpts of each of these four letters along with Kelly's introduction. 25th February 1942, Los Angeles, California. Major Henning B. Dieter was a self-described 16-year-old army brat, son of Captain H.B. Dieter at Greenville Flying School, Mississippi, when he received four letters from men previously under his father's command. Major Dieter says that the men who sent the letters, Privates First Class Charles Patrick and Charles J. Young, Corporals J. A. Driscoll and J. Swede Ziesler, were all responsible members of Battery B, 122nd Coast Artillery, AA Battalion, New Jersey National Guard, stationed at Downey, California. The attack by quote-unquote unidentified aircraft was also confirmed by the Western Defense Command, the 4th Interceptor Command, and the Los Angeles Police Department. Additionally, in the 26 February 1942 issue of the New York Times, the incident is simultaneously described by reports on page 1 and 3, and then denied by Secretary of War J. Franks Knox on page 3. The front page headline reads, Los Angeles guns bark at the air enemy. The continuation headline reads, Los Angeles pounds unseen foe in reported aircraft invasion. In his letter that begins, Dear Dieter II, Corp Corporal Driscoll writes, quote, the main purpose of this letter is to straighten you out on this firing affair over Los Angeles. I know neither you nor your pop would want to go through life not knowing the real story. Here it is. When the call to arms was sounded and the distant booms of the AA guns around LA was heard, the boys were at their guns itching for the command to fire. The searchlights had the sky lit up like a pattern with their crossbeam. They had the planes right in the center. And there were planes, not gigantic seagulls, not anything else. But they were out of our firing range. Well, the planes kept coming in our direction. D battery let go a barrage of fire at the planes, which were flying at about 6,000 feet using a seven and one half fuse. The shrapnel was showering all around battery C. They fired about 160 rounds. It sounded like the 4th of July. Then, for a split second, they came within our range, and we let loose, our guns pounding away. We fired 32 rounds, and they must have been effective, because the planes scattered after our fire. I'll bet Pop wishes he was with us as much as we wish he were here. Private First Class Patrick writes, 
Well, Hen, here's the lowdown on that attack, 25 February. When we dashed out, we saw about 50 searchlights were concentrated on one spot in the sky. And I could barely see the planes, but they were up there all right. I could see six planes, and shells were bursting all around them. Naturally, all of us fellows were anxious to get our two cents worth in, and when the command came, everyone cheered like a son of a gun. We fired about 20 rounds at them, and then the formation broke up, but returned about five minutes later, and we opened fire again. All in all, we fired around 40 rounds. We received the credit from the brigade headquarters for forcing the formation to scatter. He adds, Do you know that this is the first time we ever fired at night, and only the second time we have ever fired the guns? Corporal Zeezer writes, When we opened fire, they broke formation and hightailed it home, wherever that may be. Well, kid, I'll try to answer all of your questions truthfully. I mean it, Private First Class Young began in his letter. It was about 0255, and the call to arms was blown. Then we got the all clear. Ten minutes later, call to arms was again blown. I hear boom, boom, boom. Saw the searchlights in the HE burstery. Got to the gun in nothing flat. Was at the gun about five minutes when we got the order to open fire. Funny, too, because they were at all times out of fuse range. I guess the idea was to throw up a barrage to keep them high. At first, I thought the planes, and there were at least five, according to the flight finder crew and directory crew, were bombing Voltaire. Most of the men believe that they weren't bombers, but were reconnaissance planes. P.S. All of this is off the record. Don't forget. In the opening paragraphs of its story, the New York Times reports the incident as follows. Anti-aircraft batteries protecting airplane factories and oil deposits in the Los Angeles Metropolitan District directed barrage after barrage in the pre-dawn darkness today against planes which late in the afternoon were still unidentified. Residents from Santa Monica southward to Long Beach, covering a 39-mile arc, watched from rooftops, hills, and beaches as tracer bullets with golden yellowish tints and shells like sky rockets offered the first real show of the Second World War on the United States mainland. Police throughout the area said that planes, ranging in number from 1 to 100, were overhead, but no bombs fell during the five-hour blackout and no aircraft was shot down. Under the headline, Knox Calls It False Alarm, the Knox story begins, Secretary Knox said today that advices from the Pacific Coast indicated that the raid scare in Los Angeles was a quote-unquote false alarm. Having saved his letter for 50 years, Major Dieter comments, I long expected that after the war, the airlines, the U.S. Navy, Mexico, or Japan would eventually reveal where these unidentified aircraft came from and what they were up to. However, if the information was ever revealed, I did not hear about it. I continue to save these letters until someone, somewhere, someday may reveal the truth. It sounds like, yeah, like this is an unidentified flying object. No one's taking credit for it. I don't know. It's just interesting because... Everyone ha reports something different, right? But the guys that are at these like battle stations firing into the sky, they're saying there's something there. There's there was something formation, there. right? And it left. Like if I'm thinking in the context of war, it would make sense that it was some sort of like enemy reconnaissance mission. And it would make sense that no one ever takes credit for it if it was supposed to be like a re recon mission, you know? Right, because that would be secret. Yeah, and it's like, I guess, breaking the rules of war, right? Right. Or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Like, how could we not figure that out by now? I don't know. That's weird. It's very weird. And even the soldiers that are writing these letters, like that one guy goes, this is off the record. Like, don't mm -hmm. tell anyone that I'm telling you 
that I'm going against the narrative. Like, yes, it did happen. Our like Secretary of Defense is saying, oh, it was a false alarm. But I was there and I'm telling you, I physically saw these planes flying in formation. And my commander even said, hey, good job, because we forced the enemy planes to scatter and break mm-hmm. formation. Yeah. I don't know. It's like all of these details are just very interesting. And in 2010, a witness to the Battle of Los Angeles named Scott Littleton gave an hour-long account of his experience at a UFO event called MUFON LA, a UFO convention put on the U.S.-based nonprofit organization, the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON. At the time of the attack, Littleton was just eight years old and living in a beach house on Hermosa Beach within L.A. County. In 2010, Littleton was an elderly man in the 80s, but his speech is surprisingly cogent, if at times long-winded. Natalia, I'm going to play a section of this speech for our listeners now. Let me begin by stating pretty much unequivocally that I don't by any means consider myself to be a full-fledged ufologist. But the sighting we're primarily concerned with this evening was witnessed by almost a million other people in Southern California in the early hours of February 25, 1942. At that time, less than three months after Pearl Harbor, and especially in coastal communities like Hermosa Beach, where we'd moved, my family had moved in the spring of 1941 to a house that faced directly on the ocean, the threat of invasion was still palpable. And a great many folks, including the military, expected to be bombed in the near future. For that reason, the whole uh, of of Santa Monica Bay, from Malibu to Palos Verdes, was soon ringed with anti-aircraft and searchlight batteries belonging to the 37th Coast Artillery Brigade. The guns banged away almost every night, shooting at targets that were towed across the sky over the ocean by specially designed planes. Uh, The targets would be pinpointed by the searchlight beams, which also illuminated the exploding shells. It was a grand show that usually lasted about half an hour and rarely, if ever, continued after 10 p.m. out of respect for the local population. At first, we kids would watch the action with great fascination, but after a few nights in early January, the noise of the guns and the exploding shells soon became routine. Most people uh, learned to sleep through the cacophony with few problems. Remember, they didn't, they didn't practice very late for that reason. Indeed, it gave us a sense of security uh, that our uh, security, our brave anti-aircraft gunners, would quickly save us from any attempts by the Japanese to penetrate our airspace. Remember, this is less than three months after Pearl Harbor. As I recall, the early, mor- the early evening of February 24th was unremarkable. The guns, the anti-aircraft guns, fired a few practice rounds and then fell silent well before 10 p.m. I remember going to bed shortly thereafter, reading for a few minutes by the light of a small flashlight I kept hidden under my pillow, and then falling asleep. A few minutes after 3 a.m., here comes 3 a.m. again, I distinctly remember, and because I know that because I distinctly remember glancing at my bedside clock, I was awakened by the sound of several aircraft passing almost directly overhead. But by the time I got up and looked out my bedroom window, they were nowhere to be seen. It was extremely odd as we never heard planes at that hour. Puzzled, I went back to bed and had just about dozed off when I was once again rudely awakened, this time by what I initially thought was distant thunder. 
But as I became fully awake, I realized that the anti-aircraft guns were firing again. Bang, bang, bang. This too was extremely odd as they never practiced it, as they never, ever practiced at this hour. Then I glanced out <clears throat> my window again and I noticed, I noticed that the sky, what I could see of it, was now filled with blinding searchlight beams and bright flashes. I heard my parents talking excitedly in the hall and I poked and poked my head out. My father, who was an air raid warden, looked worried and said it didn't make any sense. He tried to get through by phone to civil defense headquarters, but there was no answer. Uh, we later learned that the alert had been called uh, at 2.25 a.m., although nobody had bothered to get the word out to the local air raid wardens in our area. The whole system collapsed, at least in the south, our part of the South Bay. So he put on his gear anyway and ran outside to see what was happening. He soon returned looking even more grave and told my mother to get me, my paternal grandparents who lived with us at the time, and my recently widowed maternal grandfather down to the basement bomb shelter we'd begun building in the afternoon of December 7, 1941, three months earlier. Normally, my maternal grandfather was slower than the second coming of Christ in his personal habits, uh, but when my father said, quote, Mr. Hotchkiss, I think this may be the real thing, he was up and fully dressed in 30 seconds flat. That's one of my memories of that evening. And my mother escorted her in-laws and father down to the shelter, which consisted of what had been two small dressing rooms. I followed along, despite the fact that I was eager to poke my head out and watch the real thing. My mother felt the same way, as she later said, after a couple of minutes in such cramped quarters, surrounded by the halitosis exuded by the elder generation, she was ready to brave a Japanese bomb or two. Uh, when she exited the, the basement through the door that led directly led out to the beach, out to the strand, uh, and I followed closely behind her. I mean, she stepped out and I snuck out, eight-year-old, you know, I want to see what's going on. Right? So, so she, although my mother was, of course, apprehensive about my safety, and at the same time, uh, but at the same time, she understood why, why I was dying to see what was going on, and she let me stay. Uh, it was now about 3.30 uh, a.m., give or take a couple of minutes. The two of us stood side by side in front of the house, huddling together in the chill night air and staring up at the sky. The planes we'd both heard, we'd both heard earlier, she'd heard them, my parents had heard them too, uh, were not in sight, but what captured our rapt attention was a silvery lozenge-shaped bug, as my mother uh, later described it, that was clearly visible in the searchlight beams that pinpointed it. Although it was a clear, bright night, no other details could be uh, discerned, at least we couldn't, despite the fact that when we first saw it, the object was hanging motionless almost directly overhead. Its altitude was hard, is hard to estimate, especially after all these years, but I'd guess that it was somewhere between four and 8,000 feet up. 12-pound high-explosive anti-aircraft uh, shells were bursting all around the mysterious craft. The noise was almost deafening, and with each bright red flash, the acrid odor of cordite became even more pronounced. Shrapnel was also falling on the beach, and my mother and I backed up against the house to avoid being struck. However, between shell bursts, between exploding rounds, the craft emitted no sound whatsoever nor did it seem to be acting aggressively. As we stood there, open-mouthed, watching the remarkable drama unfolding in the night sky, 
the object which blithely ignored the intense anti-aircraft barrage directed against it, began to move southward, slowly southward. It was moving at a very stately pace. Several minutes later, it appeared to lose altitude and veered eastward over Redondo Beach where we lost sight of it. Either our gunners were abysmally inept, despite all the practice they'd had in recent weeks, which as I just said had become almost akin to the sound of the surf, or the thing was in whatever it was was invulnerable to attack. Several minutes after we lost sight of it, we once again heard the unmistakable sound of aircraft engines and a flight of Army Air Corps interceptors that were probably based at Mines Field and buzzed off to the southeast, apparent, apparently chasing the object. It seemed pretty obvious. At that point, it was shortly before 4 a.m. Precisely how long we'd stood there is still hazy in my mind, although I suspect that the whole episode, that is, from the time I followed my mother out to the Strand, to the point where the interceptors disappeared from view lasted about 25 minutes. It could have been 20. Wow. What do you think of Scott Littleton's testimony? I mean, if he really did see like a flying saucer, like a disc, uh, I, don't, I just, you know, I'm jumping off the rails now. I think that we've talked a lot about time travel. We've talked about the possibility of like aliens and like why they would be doing recon here, et cetera, et cetera. Well, not long after this event happened, uh, American military dropped a nuclear weapon on Japan. So maybe the aliens are coming to check out and like see like what we were up to. Maybe all those places that they were hovering over were places where they were assembling weapons like that. My mind is racing too. And it's just like when you hear a first person account like Scott Littleton, my gut reaction is not to say, oh, you're crazy. That didn't happen. Because I feel like that's not fair. I wasn't there. Right. Like I tend to believe people mm -hmm. who have these first person accounts. But it's just weird that every single person is reporting seeing something different. So Natalia, now we're going to get into the theories for this episode. And I'm going to let you pick which one I tell you first. There are two skeptic theories one conspiracy theory and two believer theories. Which one, where do you want me to start? What section? Let's hear the conspiracy theory first. Okay. Now, this one is batshit crazy, as most conspiracy theories are. So, anyone listening to this, take it in a lighthearted thing because like you were saying at the beginning sometimes you go down a rabbit hole and then you end up in a place you don't want to be right so just take right. this with like a you know it's a conspiracy theory take it at face value right, right. Or take let it, it yeah let it pass over your mind and don't hold on to it also it's scary so <laughs> so if you want to listen to it and then like tuck it away in the deep recesses of your mind or immediately like throw it out in the trash can i understand because it's scary okay theory number three a psyop Natalia, do you know what a f false flag is? Yeah. You pretend like something bad happened, but it didn't. Like, it's like crying wolf. It's like, yeah. So the, I think one of the m major examples that is very topical right now is, um, so right now there's a very famous defamation um, court case going on against Alex Jones. Is this the guy who said Sandy Hook wasn't real? Yes. Right now, a bunch of families involved in the Sandy Hook elementary school shooting are suing Alex Jones because he called the shooting a false flag when it first came out. And a false flag can pretty much be summed up as like, hey, our government or some organization is going to say that this thing happened when it really didn't. To justify the means for some other taking away your freedom. Don't tread on me. Yeah, right? exactly. Totally. So according to dictionary.com, the definition of a false flag is as follows. 
An attack or other hostile action that obscures the identity of the participants carrying out the action while implicating another group or nation as the perpetrator. So proponents of this conspiracy theory believe that the U.S. government staged a fake battle over the skies of one of the most populated cities in one of the most populated states in order to convince the American public that entering World War II was a necessity. Oh, fuck. I didn't even think of that. Some of the people who support this theory think that the military was shooting at nothing in the sky, while others believe the military used a projector to project the image of hundreds of aircrafts, paratroopers, and shrapnel onto the clouds in the night sky to create the illusion of a grand battle. That's, oh my god. That's scary. It's fucking scary. And this theory sent me down a different rabbit hole when I noticed that some people on 4chan were claiming that the Battle of Los Angeles was part of Project Bluebeam. Natalia, have you ever heard of this? Oh, my God. No. But if it came from 4chan, it can't be good. It's not good. Okay. It's not good. So randomly, this theory kind of ties in with our episode on the Georgia Guidestones. In the Georgia Guidestones episode, we talked about how the stone tablets were controversial because some viewed them as a guide promoting this thing called the New World Order. Yeah. So you remember that, right? Yeah. I hope our listeners remember that. We tried to forget. But... We tried to forget, but it's there. <laughs> Essentially, Project Bluebeam is a conspiracy theory promoted by a famous Canadian conspiracy theorist named Sergei Monast. Which I didn't even know you could be popular for promoting conspiracy theories, but apparently he's like the godfather of conspiracy theories. And according to Wikipedia, in 1994, Monast published Project Bluebeam, NASA, in which he details his claim that NASA, with the help of the United Nations, was attempting to implement a New Age religion with the Antichrist at its head and start a new world order via a technologically simulated second coming of Christ. Those who believe in Monast's Project Bluebeam conspiracy view the Battle of Los Angeles as a simulated epic sky war meant to be seen as the second coming of Christ in order to scare the American people into submitting to the will of the Antichrist. Or, paraphrased slightly differently in an article for Myth Detector written by Miriam Dangodzi, quote, Bluebeam is a conspiracy theory that develops the New World Order conspiracy. According to conspiracy theorists, the processes described in the Bluebeam theory are the steps necessary to establish the New World Order. According to the Bluebeam theorists, NASA and the UN have begun to produce highly advanced technology. Using this technology, the entire Earth will see a simulation in the sky that would be created using a series of satellites located at different locations around the globe. As the conspiracy goes, using this method and in cooperation with the Antichrist, a simulation of the second coming will be created and all humans on the earth will be united under a single religion under the framework of the blue beam. This way, establishing the total control will become easier and other stages necessary for establishing the new world order will not take too long either. So basically, this theory is saying this was like the first attempt at project, like Project Bluebeam is ongoing, according Mm -hmm. to this conspiracy theory. And the Battle of Los Angeles was the first experiment of this epic sky battle to make people think the world is ending and Mm -hmm. the the Antichrist or the second coming of Jesus is here Mm. and people will just do whatever their government says, essentially. Mm. What do you think of this conspiracy theory? It's fucking freaky. I don't like it. You know, I think it's like a it's an interesting conspiracy theory it's like you know an interesting thought but i just don't think it could ever work like i don't think we're gonna ever be able to unite the globe under one common idea 
It also <laughs> really reminds me of like the Hunger Games where when they're in the actual Hunger Game battle zone, you know, right. they have like that fake sky yeah. and stuff gets simulated oh, on yeah. it. And then she like shoots, spoiler, she, Katniss like shoots the arrow at its weak spot and right. like takes down the force field. It just reminds me of that. Like it's a force field theory. Like do we even, will we ever have the technology to figure that out? I don't think so, but especially in the 40s, I don't think we would have had that ability. But it's still yeah. interesting and freaky to think of like some giant underground government right. agency with a crazy projector just like projecting paratroopers and airplanes yeah. on clouds. At first, it made sense to me. Like I was like, OK, I could see the United States government doing that, being like, oh, look, we need to we need to enter this war. Look how in danger American citizens are, you know? Yeah. And like, we've we're run projecting. PSYOPs before. Yeah, exactly. We've done fucking weird ass PSYOPs like over in Vietnam. We were like, you know, flying over the fucking countryside pretending to be ghosts. Yeah. Like, yeah. That was weird. That was weird. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, listen to our Operation Wandering Soul episode. Yeah. So I don't put it past the U.S. military to do something like that. Um, but they lost me in the second half. Yeah. You know, they had me in the first half. Not going <laughs> right, to lie. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's interesting. Definitely unlikely. But I do. There's something like the first half, like you said, is very like interesting and something I'd never heard of before, mm -hmm. like projecting a battle onto the clouds. Second half. Now we've gone down a rabbit hole. We don't right. want to go down. Yeah. And perhaps we now cover that rabbit hole with dirt and kill the rabbit inside. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You want to move on to the believers? Yes. Believer theories. And then we'll circle back to the yes. skeptic. OK. Theory number four, believer theory, aliens. Proponents of this theory believe that the mysterious craft being fired upon in the Battle of Los Angeles was not a Japanese warplane, but an extraterrestrial flying saucer or UFO. Under the YouTube comments of a video showing the original footage and radio audio of the Battle of Los Angeles, the top voted comment reads as follows. User Ellie Green writes, quote, I was living in Santa Monica when this happened and I saw it. I was only seven years old but I remember it clearly as my own name. Yes, a blackout had been called before we went to bed, but my mama, my sister, and I were all awakened about 2 a.m. by noise. We were not supposed to open the curtains, but mama cracked open a corner of it and cried out. Next thing I remember, the three of us were out on our back stoop, staring in wonder at what we saw in the sky. I don't know what direction we would have been looking, but we looked out towards some small hills a few miles away. Mama said it was in the direction of an aircraft plant, though, and there were about eight searchlights swinging back and forth across the sky and little bursts of something that looked like fire in the sky and lines of what I was later told were tracer bullets, whatever that is. Finally, the searchlights all came together and fastened on one object in the sky. Mama cried out, oh my God, it's a Japanese plane. I remember I looked at her with astonishment because what I saw was a largish, circular disc which looked golden but that was probably from the searchlights it looked flat and it was not moving mama was always a quote-unquote movie freak so we went to see movies often and i had sat through many news bulletins about the war and had seen films of airplanes flying and they were fast we used to get the saturday evening post and that magazine had little cartoons about war stuff one thing they had shown in a small cartoon was the markings on Japanese aircraft. Well, this object was going nowhere. It just sat there with the searchlights on it. There were no markings or colors of any kind on the object. 
Things were firing at the object, and it was noisy, with many bright flashes in the sky. This must have gone on for about 15 minutes at least, and finally, the largish, circular, flat object began to slowly move, and it just silently, or so it seemed, floated out of sight, going south from Santa Monica. It seemed undaunted by all of the firings that surely must have hit it. We heard the next day that it had also been seen in Long Beach. Where I lived at the time was in small apartments on Santa Monica Boulevard, and I don't remember the address, but it was directly across the street from McKinley Elementary School because I had just begun first grade there. So this theory basically says that the reason why nothing was seen the next day is because it was an alien UFO, and obviously aliens would have superior technology that would allow a aircraft, one of their aircrafts to not get shot down. Mm -hmm. And that the reason why so many people report seeing like a disc hovering is because that's what it was. It was a UFO. Right. But it doesn't account for people seeing paratroopers coming Agreed. down over downtown. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, it sounds like from all of the first person accounts, um, like this first person account that I read and then the one of Scott Littleton who gave that talk at MUFON in LA in 2011, it sounds like a lot of the U.S. citizens that were on the ground interpreted it to be an alien, whereas the U.S. military personnel that wrote those letters seem to have interpreted it as enemy aircraft. Mm. So again, we're getting conflicting reports. Okay, theory number five, an alternate timeline became visible for a brief moment. This theory is heavily pushed by those who believe that over the years, the veil between our world and the quote-unquote spirit world, or a parallel dimension depending on what you believe, has thinned on several different occasions. Some think that the veil thins in accordance with the calendar, with Halloween being the day where the veil is thinnest, while others think that our dimension and parallel dimensions collide randomly for only brief moments, leading to superstitions about entities like ghosts, and others think that the veil has been progressively thinning more and more each year. So under this theory, there are a couple different sub-theories. Some people, which I would categorize as maybe like more mystics, think, oh, of course, there's like a veil between our world and the next. It thins from time to time with Halloween being the thinnest. And that's why there's all these superstitions surrounding Halloween about like ghosts, because what we're seeing is the veil kind of being lifted or more hazy. And now we can see these things that we wouldn't normally be able to see, like cryptids and ghosts mm -hmm. and aliens, whatever we're interpreting that to be. Right. Other people think, no, it's not mystical. It has nothing to do with the calendar. It's scientific. Right. Of course, we live in a multiverse where there are infinite versions of ourselves living alternate lives. Mm -hmm. um, there are definitely aliens, but they're not like living in our universe. They're living in a parallel universe. And from time to time, just randomly through like scientific means, mm -hmm. our universes collide and for a split second we see each other. Mm -hmm. And that's what we interpret as time travelers or ghosts or aliens. Right. So then this alternate timeline, whatever, they're probably freaking out too. And they like are, you have a, someone, people podcasting and being like, remember that time when like someone was flying a plane and said that they saw like all these weird UFOs like and shining there were lights, lights on them? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yes. And they're like, I'm going to show you a picture. Doesn't this look like our version of Fox? 
like searchlight photo. Yeah. You know I mean? Like totally. Yes. Or was it was it that this was an exact replica of LA just in a parallel universe where the Japanese really did come and bomb? It just didn't happen in our universe. Mm. But for a split second, we could see that battle. And that's why the only damage we could find was from friendly fire, because we're shooting at a parallel universe. In that alternate universe, like if the war played out that perhaps like Japan became the world yes. power, I would like to go to that universe. Yeah. <laughs> Natalia loves Japan. Yes. So this kind of led me down another rabbit hole where I found this community of people that believe that the veil has been thinning steadily more and more over time. And they think that the Battle of Los Angeles marks the very first moment that this thinning began. This really like culminated in a subreddit called r slash the truth is here. And one of the most popular posts was by a user named Issa Long, who wrote, quote, I believe we have two separate realms on the same plane in the third dimension we live in the physical, current, and the spiritual, spirit realm. I also believe the spirit realm holds spirits and entities of all types and forms good and bad. Has anyone noticed a drastic increase in weird occurrences, paranormal, cryptid, weird emotions recently in the past months to only grow? I have not only in my own life, but a lot with people on so many different subreddits. I feel as though the veil between worlds is becoming less enforced, allowing us to interact with these beings slash processes. User The Voice of Reason responded to this thread writing, I've personally been experiencing an increase in what I call moments of synchronicity. It's when I'll be doing something like reading and when at that exact moment I read an uncommon word, I'll hear it on the TV or someone in the room says it at that exact same time. I'd say it happens once or twice a week to me. A really stark example happened to me last week. I was joking with a client how I just assume I'm wrong all the time and that I should make all my decisions by doing the opposite of my instincts like George Costanza does in that one episode of Seinfeld. When I walk in the door at home that night, my wife has the TV on and what do you know, that exact episode of Seinfeld is playing and she never watches Seinfeld. It's probably just a coincidence, right? Probably. But these kinds of coincidences keep piling up week after week and I don't know why. The increase in frequency has me thinking that the universe is trying to get my attention, that I need to be on increased alert or something. Who knows? User BZ Mama responded saying, It means that your subconscious is waking up. Your third eye, if you will. You are tuning in. The more you tune in, the more you notice. Eventually, you are always tuned in and can hold higher frequencies for much longer. I don't think the veil is getting thinner. I think that more people are tuning in. The universe is speaking to us, and it's up to us to listen. Good for you. It sounds like you guys are doing just that. Could this offer an explanation for why so many people saw different things during the Battle of Los Angeles, and why there were so many conflicting reports? Perhaps some people had a more awakened third eye and saw more images in the sky, whereas others with a more dormant or closed third eye saw less. Out of all of the theories we've talked about, this so far is my favorite theory because while you were talking about like, oh, this is like a thinning of the veil and, uh, you know, where like synchronicities are happening, I went down a another, I opened a new tab in my mind. Right. And I was like, what if this is the thinning of the veil? And like, yes, you're able to open your third eye and communicate more with those people. 
And I was like, so then like, you know, he was talking about how could it just be a coincidence that this Costanza episode was on? And I was like, no, what if that's like someone in the spirit world, like trying to communicate with you and being like, you can communicate like your thoughts become reality. And then I like took it a step further and I was like, why are some people lucky and some people not? And I was like, what if like some people have what they think is like luck is actually like someone in the spirit world who's like helping them win so you know you're at the roulette table in vegas and you get like a wild hair that's like i should just take thirty thousand dollars and bet it all on black right and and then you do that and you win and it's because like you have this little guardian angel that's just some edgelord in another universe like communicating with you and helping you be lucky shit See, see what I mean? This this episode leads to so many different rabbit holes. Right. What if some people saw paratroopers while others saw a plane crashing yeah. into the ground because they just have varying levels of third eye awokenness or right. awakeness and different things are whispering in their ears and different things are appearing to them. Right. Yeah. Like if this this uh, veil was thinning, we could assume that there were multiple entities or whatever on the other side that were communicating with people and just how, you know, they say like, uh, sh- like sh- demons or spirits or whatever present themselves at like different things to different people. It would just be a reflection of that person's own conscious of what they saw. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you say demons because the final believer theory, theory number six, I think I said five earlier, but there's actually six. I just missed this one because it was it's so short. A surprisingly large number of people believe that the Battle of Los Angeles was the result of demonic entities appearing in a visual spectrum for us to see. This theory seems to come from a still frame in the only released footage of the Battle of Los Angeles, where some claim to see a giant demonic skull in the sky staring down at LA ominously. Do you okay, want to see cool. this? Yeah, show it. Okay. Oh, I see it already. You already see it? Okay. Yeah. Here. Yeah, that's the nose, the eyes, whatever. Yeah, I see it. That's cool. You know what it looks like? It looks like in Harry Potter when they do the Death Eater symbol in the sky. Yes, it totally does. It looks like that. So and Harry Potter is real confirmed. Harry Potter is real confirmed. Uh, we don't talk about J.K. Rowling anymore, but <laughs> perhaps there's a parallel here. I don't know. You guys draw your own conclusions. Right. But I am going to post this little tiny like two second clip of this skull forming in the sky to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram for those who want to see it. I mean, it is it's kind of cool. It's like kind of freaky and cool and like mystical. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it, too. So now we're going to do the final two boring theories, which are skeptic theories, which we don't fucking like because they're stupid and we get it. Okay, we get it. People panic in times of like strife and perhaps have false memories. So our, our podcast normally moves on from those theories and goes for the other ones. But I'm just quickly going to tell you these two skeptic theories. Theory number one, nothing. Proponents of this theory argue that all evidence points to there being nothing at all in the sky that night. The facts are as follows. The only damage on the ground was caused by friendly fire, and no aircraft wreckage, paratroopers, or enemy bombs or bullets were ever recovered. Therefore, logic would dictate that the so-called Battle of Los Angeles was nothing more than a product of paranoia and trigger fingers. What likely happened that evening is as follows. Military personnel on the West Coast were extremely on edge following Pearl Harbor, and California was especially on edge after the attack on Santa Barbara. Californians were leaving the state in droves out of fear of an impending attack, and this fear ran so deep that hundreds of thousands of Japanese would eventually be sent to internment camps that same year. 
An anxious military person on duty that evening, watching the skies after the air raid siren went off, probably accidentally pulled the trigger out of nervousness, causing a chain reaction of others firing in the same direction, not wanting to be the last to act. Embarrassed and worried that this incident would make us look stupid, the U.S. government chose to arrest some Japanese citizens living in L.A., accusing them of getting everyone worked up by shining signal lights into the night sky, and then promptly attempted to bury the story. Military personnel involved in the incident were also embarrassed and had no choice but to double down on the claim that they really did witness crafts in the sky that night. Yeah, seems logical. Cool story. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. That's all I have to say. That's, That's what I they wanted, right? They yeah. wanted me to just be like, yep, okay. Okay, makes sense. Moving on. Now we're going to talk about the Battle of LA ever again. Yeah. Yeah. Theory number two, the final skeptic theory and the final theory in this podcast, a weather balloon. A 1983 report from the U.S. Office of Air Force History concluded that there really was something in the sky over L.A. that night, but stated it was probably just a weather balloon, and all the resulting air raid sirens, searchlights, and anti-aircraft gunfire were the result of war nerves. In Evan Andrews' article for History.com, he goes on to say, In 1983, the Office of Air Force History outlined the events of the L.A. air raid and noted that meteorological balloons had been released prior to the barrage to help determine wind conditions. Their lights and silver color could have been what first triggered the alerts. Once the shooting began, the disorienting combination of searchlights, smoke, and anti-aircraft flak might have led gunners to believe they were firing on enemy planes even though none were actually present. It's likely that the Battle of Los Angeles was only a mirage. So I decided to look up this 1983 report from the U.S. Office of Air Force History to read it for myself, and this is what the report has to say about the Battle of L.A. During the night of 24-25, February 1942, unidentified objects caused a succession of alerts in Southern California. On the 24th, a warning issued by naval intelligence indicated that an attack could be expected within the next 10 hours. That evening, a large number of flares and blinking lights were reported from the vicinity of defense plants. An alert called at 1918 was lifted at 2223, and the tension temporarily relaxed. But early in the morning of the 25th, renewed activity began. Radars picked up an unidentified target 120 miles west of Los Angeles. Anti-aircraft batteries were alerted at 0215 and were put on green alert, ready to fire, a few minutes later. The AAF kept its pursuit planes on the ground, preferring to await indications of the scale and direction of any attack before committing its limited fighter force. Radars tracked the approaching target to within a few miles of the coast, and at 0221, the regional controller ordered a blackout. Thereafter, the information center was flooded with reports of enemy planes, even though the mysterious object tracked in from seas seems to have vanished by that point. At 0243, planes were reported near Long Beach, and a few minutes later, a coast artillery colonel spotted about 25 planes at 12,000 feet over Los Angeles. At 0306, a balloon carrying a red flare was seen over Santa Monica, and four batteries of anti-aircraft artillery opened fire, whereupon the air over Los Angeles erupted like a volcano. From this point on, reports were hopelessly at variance. Probably much of the confusion came from the fact that anti-aircraft shell bursts, caught by the searchlights, were themselves mistaken for enemy planes. In any case, the next three hours produced some of the most imaginative reportings of the war. 
swarms of planes, or sometimes balloons, of all possible sizes, numbering from one to several hundred, traveling at altitudes which ranged from a few thousand feet to more than 20,000, and flying at speeds which were said to have varied from very slow to over 200 miles per hour, were observed to parade across the skies. These mysterious forces dropped no bombs, and despite the fact that 1,440 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition were directed against them, suffered no losses. There were reports, to be sure, that four enemy planes had been shot down, and one was supposed to have landed in flames at a Hollywood intersection. Residents in a 40-mile arc along the coast watched from hills or rooftops as the play of guns and searchlights provided the first real drama of the war for citizens of the mainland. The dawn, which ended the shooting and the fantasy, also proved that the only damage which resulted to the city was such as had been caused by the excitement. There was at least one death from heart failure that was confirmed. By traffic accidents in the blacked-out streets, or by shell fragments from the artillery barrage, a.k.a. friendly fire. Attempts to arrive at an explanation of the incident quickly became as involved and mysterious as the battle itself. The Navy immediately insisted that there was no evidence of the presence of enemy planes, and Secretary Knox announced at a press conference on 25 February that the raid was just a false alarm. At the same conference, he admitted that attacks were always possible and indicated that vital industries located along the coast ought to be moved inland. The Army had a hard time making up its mind on the cause of the alert. A report to Washington, made by the Western Defense Command shortly after the raid had ended, indicated that the credibility of reports of an attack had begun to be shaken before the blackout was lifted. This message predicted that developments would prove that most previous reports had been greatly exaggerated. The 4th Air Force had indicated its belief that there were no planes over Los Angeles, but the Army did not publish these initial conclusions. Instead, it waited a day until after a thorough examination of witnesses had been finished. On the basis of these hearings, local commanders altered their verdict that indicated a belief that from one to five unidentified airplanes had been seen over Los Angeles. Secretary Stimson announced this conclusion as the War Department version of the incident, and he advanced two theories to account for the mysterious craft. Either they were commercial planes operated by an enemy from secret fields in California or Mexico, or they were light planes launched from Japanese submarines. In either case, the enemy's purpose must have been to locate anti-aircraft defenses in the area or to deliver a blow at civilian morale. The divergence of views between the war and Navy departments and the unsatisfying conjectures advanced by the Army to explain the affair touched off a vigorous public discussion. The Los Angeles Times, in a first-page editorial on 26 February, announced that the considerable public excitement and confusion caused by the alert, as well as its spectacular official accompaniments, demanded a careful explanation. Fears were expressed lest a few phony raids undermine the confidence of civilian volunteers in the aircraft warning service. In Congress, Representative Leland Ford wanted to know whether the incident was a practice raid or a raid to throw a scare into two million people, or a mistaken identity raid or a raid to take away Southern California's war industries. Wendell Wilkie, speaking in Los Angeles on 26 February, assured Californians on the basis of his experience in England that when a real air raid begin, you won't have to argue about it, you'll just know. He conceded that military authorities had been correct in calling a precautionary alert, but deplored the lack of agreement between the Army and Navy. A strong editorial in the Washington Post on 27 February called the handling of the Los Angeles episode a recipe for jitters and censored the military authorities for what it called stubborn silence in the face of widespread uncertainty. 
The editorial suggested that the Army's theory that commercial planes might have caused the alert explains everything except where the planes came from, whither they were going, and why no American planes were sent in pursuit of them. The New York Times on 28 February expressed a belief that the more the incident was studied, the more incredible it became. Quote, If the batteries were firing on nothing at all, as Secretary Knox implies, it is a sign of expensive incompetence and jitters. If the batteries were firing on real planes, some of them as low as 9,000 feet, as Secretary Stimson declares, why were they completely ineffective? Why did no American planes go up to engage them, or even to identify them? What would have happened if this had been a real air raid? These questions were appropriate, but for the War Department to have answered them in full frankness would have involved an even more complete revelation of the weakness of our air defenses. At the end of the war, the Japanese stated that they did not send planes over the area at the time of this alert, although submarine-launched aircraft were subsequently used over Seattle, Washington. A careful study of the evidence suggests that meteorological balloons, known to have been released over Los Angeles, may well have caused the initial alarm. This theory is supported by the fact that anti-aircraft artillery units were officially criticized for having wasted ammunition on targets which moved too slowly to have been airplanes. After the firing started, careful observation was difficult because of drifting smoke from shell bursts. The acting commander of the anti-aircraft artillery brigade in the area testified that he had first been convinced that he had seen 15 planes in the air, but had quickly decided that what he was actually seeing was smoke. Competent correspondents like Ernie Pyle and Bill Henry witnessed the shooting and wrote that they were never able to make out an airplane. It is hard to see in any event what enemy purpose would have been served by an attack in which no bombs were dropped, unless perhaps, as Mr. Stimson suggested, the purpose had been reconnaissance. And that is the story of the Battle of Los Angeles. Natalia, what do you think of all of these theories? I mean, they all sound like they're very well thought out, uh, except for the one about uh, there being like a coming of Christ or something. Yeah. You know, I could see any of those being any of the theories other than that one being something that I could get behind, Um, which is my favorite theory is obviously the one that is about the thinning of the veil because it makes me believe that I can somehow communicate with someone on the other side and they can be like my fairy godmother and be like, oh, you should like you know, go to this place at this time and, like, steer me, like, in that direction through synchronicities so that I end up, like, having my dream life or something. Yes. Yes, I agree. Definitely a very interesting story. I agree with you. I think my favorite is the parallel universe theory. The idea that, like, the veil thinned at just the right time that we could see in an alternate universe a situation where Japanese planes did attack Los Angeles. I don't know. It's just very interesting. And like, I mean, war is terrible. So it sounds fucked up to be like, that's fun. But like the theory in it is fun. I wasn't even thinking that it's like a parallel universe where the Japanese attacked. I was thinking like we're looking into a parallel universe where like UFOs, like flying saucers are the main mode of transportation or military transportation. And they're doing recon because they're like, what the fuck? Like all of a sudden this big ass like... City showed City up. City showed up out of nowhere oh. and it's like coming in and out and it looks different to a bunch of people and it's like right. a mirror of our experience but it's happening to them and so we're all just like what the fuck is going on and they're like oh I thought I saw like weird UFOs in the sky so I started shooting and then we're like we thought we saw UFOs so we started shooting you know. Yeah it, and it's interesting too that like even the official military report that happened 40 years later 
doesn't really know what to make of it. They're like, well, it was probably um, like a weather balloon. But at the same time, like people on the ground really did see stuff. So we can't say it was nothing. But the official report in the 40s said it was nothing. But now we're thinking it was a weather balloon. But why didn't it get shot down? I feel like the signal lights, too, could have just been people who were curious. Like if you all have blackout curtains, there's no radio on and you hear shooting above the sky. Like, are you not going to like turn a flashlight on and try to look and see what it is? Are you? Yeah. Are you not going to have like candles lit or something and then open your blackout curtains? So people are like, I saw an orange red flash, but really it was just a candle lit room being exposed for a moment as like a curious person looked out to the sky definitely and like i said there's never been any evidence that any japanese americans were like conspiring with signal lights in california so all of that can pretty much be debunked yeah um but yeah super interesting story i had heard of the battle of los angeles before but i'd never really looked into it so thank you for going down this rabbit hole journey with me. yeah this was really cool like i said i had heard of it too but i i didn't know the details of it and this was really really informative thank you for doing this episode thank you and i'm just going to read our my sources for this episode and then i'm going to ask you for your sign off sources world war ii's bizarre battle of los angeles by evan andrews for history.com various articles published to wikipedia.org episode 31 the battle of los angeles podcast episode uploaded by paranormal almanac pages 25 to 28 of voices of my comrades america's reserve officers remember world war ii edited by carol adele kelly get the ebook on google books for 32 dollars february 19th 1942 newsreel by path newsreels archived by british pathé Early World War II Americans Propaganda Newsreel, America's Call to Arms, 25112, uploaded to YouTube by Periscope Film. Pearl Harbor Newsreel, December 7th, 1941, Japanese Bomb USA 70912, uploaded to YouTube by Periscope Film. Original Pearl Harbor News Footage, uploaded to YouTube by The Atlantic. The Real Battle of Los Angeles 1942 CBS News Report, uploaded to YouTube by Ryan Bach, B-A-K. Battle of Los Angeles, The False Alarm That Left L.A. in Chaos by Andrew Lenore for AllThat'sInteresting.com. The Battle of Los Angeles, published by Greg Lucas to call170.library.ca.gov. The Mysterious Battle of Los Angeles, 1942, published to the Los Angeles Almanac. Scott Littleton, Ph.D., 031610, The Battle of Los Angeles, uploaded to YouTube by UPARS. A World War II Mystery, The Battle of L.A. by Tony Pettinato. Where Does the Blue Beam Conspiracy Originate by Miriam Dongazi, and pages 283 to 286 of Volume 1, Plans and Early Operations, January 1939 to August 1942, The Army Air Force in World War II, prepared under the editorship of Wesley Frank Craven and James Lee Kate. Natalia, would you like to give our sign-off? Yeah. Uh, BRB, gonna go meditate on saying the word over and over let's get haunted to see if I can affect someone in a different universe to find our podcast by thinning the veil bye bye On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. 
I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.